Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens deals with the major themes of duality, revolution, and resurrection. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times in London and Paris as economic and political unrest lead to the American and French revolutions. The main characters in Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, Dr. Alexander Manette, Charles Darnay, and Sidney Carton are all recalled to life or resurrected in different ways as turmoil erupts. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z. That's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify and Apple Music. Chapter 2 The Grindstone Telson's Bank, established in the Saint Germain Quarter of Paris, was in a wing of a large house, approached by a courtyard and shut off from the street by a high wall and a strong gate. The house belonged to a great nobleman who had lived in it until he made a flight from the troubles in his own cook's dress and got across the borders. A mere beast of the chase flying from hunters, he was still in his metempsychosis no other than the same Monsignor, the preparation of whose chocolate for whose lips had once occupied three strong men besides the cook in question. Monsignor gone and the three strong men absolving themselves from the sin of having drawn his high wages by being more than ready and willing to cut his throat on the altar of the dawning republic one and indivisible of liberty, equality, fraternity, or death, Monsignor's house had been first sequestrated and then confiscated. For all things moved so fast and decree followed decree with that fierce precipitation that now upon the third night of the autumn month of September, patriot emissaries of the law were in possession of Monsignor's house and had marked it with the tricolor and were drinking brandy in its state apartments. A place of business in London like Telson's place of business in Paris would soon have driven the house out of its mind and into the Gazette. For What would state British responsibility and respectability have said to orange trees in boxes in a bank courtyard and even to a cupid over the counter? Yet such things were. Telsons had whitewashed the cupid, but he was still to be seen on the ceiling in the coolest linen aiming, as he very often does, at money from morning to night. Bankruptcy must inevitably have come of this young pagan in Lombard Street, London, and also of a curtained alcove in the rear of the immortal boy, and also of a looking glass let into the wall, and also of clerks not at all old, who danced in public on the slightest provocation. Yet, a French Telsons could get on with these things exceedingly well, and, 
As long as the times held together, no man had taken fray at them and drawn out his money. What money would be drawn out of Telson's henceforth, and what would lie there, lost and forgotten, what plate and jewels would tarnish in Telson's hiding places, while the depositors rusted in prisons, and when they should have violently perished, how many accounts with Telson's never to be balanced in this world must be carried over into the next, no man could have said that night any more than Mr. Jarvis Lorry could, though he thought heavily of these questions. He sat by a newly lighted wood fire, the blighted and unfruitful year was prematurely cold, and on his honest and courageous face there was a deeper shade than the pendant lamp could throw, or any object in the room distortedly reflect a shade of horror. He occupied rooms in the bank, in his fidelity to the house of which he had grown to be a part, like strong root ivy. It chanced that they derived a kind of security from the patriotic occupation of the main building, but the true-hearted old gentleman never calculated about that. All such circumstances were indifferent to him, so that he did his duty. On the opposite side of the courtyard, under a colonnade, was extensive standing for carriages where, indeed, some carriages of Monsignor yet stood. Against two of the pillars were fastened two great flaring flambeaux, and in the light of these, standing out in the open air, was a large grindstone, a roughly mounted thing which appeared to have hurriedly been brought there from some neighboring smithy or other workshop. Rising and looking out of window at these harmless objects, Mr. Lorry shivered and retired to his seat by the fire. He had opened not only the glass window, but the lattice blind outside it, and he had closed both again, and he shivered through his frame. From the streets beyond the high wall and the strong gate, there came the usual night hum of the city, with now and then an indescribable ring in it, weird and unearthly, as if some unwanted sounds of a terrible nature were going up to heaven. Thank God, said Mr. Lorry, clasping his hands, that no one near and dear to me is in this dreadful town tonight. May he have mercy on all who are in danger. Soon afterwards, the bell at the great gate sounded, and he thought, they have come back, and sat listening. But there was no loud eruption into the courtyard, as he had expected, and he heard the gate clash again, and all was quiet. The nervousness and dread that were upon him inspired that vague uneasiness respecting the bank which a great change would naturally awaken with such feelings roused. It was well guarded and he got up to go among the trusty people who were watching it when his door suddenly opened and two figures rushed in at sight of which he fell back in amazement. Lucy and her father. Lucy with her arms stretched out to him and with that old look of earnestness so concentrated and intensified that it seemed as though it had been stamped upon her face expressly to give force and power to it in this one passage of her life. What is this? cried Mr. Lorry, breathless and confused. What is the matter? Lucy. Manette. What has happened? What has brought you here? 
What is it? With the look fixed upon him, in her paleness and wildness, she panted out in his arms, imploringly, Oh, my dear friend. My husband. Your husband, Lucy? Charles. What of Charles? Here. Here, in Paris? Has been here some days, three or four, I don't know how many I can't collect my thoughts. An errand of generosity brought him here unknown to us. He was stopped at the barrier and sent to prison. The old man uttered an irrepressible cry. Almost at the same moment, the bell of the great gate rang again and a loud noise of feet and voices came pouring into the courtyard. What is that noise? said the doctor, turning towards the window. Don't look, cried Mr. Lorry. Don't look out. Manette, for your life, don't touch the blind. The doctor turned with his hand upon the fastening of the window and said with a cool, bold smile. My dear friend, I have a charmed life in this city. I have been a Bastille prisoner. There is no patriot in Paris in Paris? In France who, knowing me to have been a prisoner in the Bastille, would touch me except to overwhelm me with embraces or carry me in triumph. My old pain has given me a power that has brought us through the barrier and gained U.S. news of Charles there and brought us here. I knew it would be so. I knew I could help Charles out of all danger. I told Lucy, so what is that noise? His hand was again upon the window. Don't look, cried Mr. Lorry, absolutely desperate. No, Lucy, my dear, nor you. He got his arm round her and held her. Don't be so terrified, my love. I solemnly swear to you that I know of no harm having happened to Charles, that I had no suspicion even of his being in this fatal place. What prison is he in? Law force. Law force. Lucy, my child, if ever you were brave and serviceable in your life and you were always both you will compose yourself now to do exactly as I bid you, for more depends upon it than you can think or I can say. There is no help for you in any action on your part tonight, you cannot possibly stir out. I say this because what I must bid you to do for Charles's sake is the hardest thing to do of all. You must instantly be obedient, still, and quiet. You must let me put you in a room at the back here. You must leave your father and me alone for two minutes, and as there are life and death in the world, you must not delay. I will be submissive to you. I see in your face that you know I can do nothing else than this. I know you are true. The old man kissed her and hurried her into his room and turned the key, then came hurrying back to the doctor and opened the window and partly opened the blind and put his hand upon the doctor's arm and looked out with him into the courtyard. 
looked out upon a throng of men and women, not enough in number, or near enough, to fill the courtyard, not more than forty or fifty in all. The people in possession of the house had let them in at the gate, and they had rushed into work at the grindstone, it had evidently been set up there for their purpose, as in a convenient and retired spot. But, such awful workers, and such awful work. The grindstone had a double handle, and, turning at it madly were two men, whose faces, as their long hair flapped back when the whirlings of the grindstone brought their faces up, were more horrible and cruel than the visages of the wildest savages in their most barbarous disguise. False eyebrows and false mustaches were stuck upon them, and their hideous countenances were all bloody and sweaty, and all awry with howling, and all staring and glaring with beastly excitement and want of sleep. As these ruffians turned and turned, their matted locks now flung forward over their eyes, now flung backward over their necks, some women held wine to their mouths that they might drink, and what with dropping blood, and what with dropping wine, and what with the stream of sparks struck out of the stone, all their wicked atmosphere seemed gore and fire. The eye could not detect one creature in the group free from the smear of blood. Shouldering one another to get next at the sharpening stone were men stripped to the waist, with the stain all over their limbs and bodies, men in all sorts of rags, with the stain upon those rags, men devilishly set off with spoils of women's lace and silk and ribbon, with the stain dyeing those trifles through and through. Hatchets, knives, bayonets, swords, all brought to be sharpened, were all red with it. Some of the hacked swords were tied to the wrists of those who carried them, with strips of linen and fragments of dress, ligatures various in kind, but all deep of the one color. And as the frantic wielders of these weapons snatched them from the stream of sparks and tore away into the streets, the same red hue was red in their frenzied eyes, eyes which any unbrutalized beholder would have given twenty years of life to petrify with a well-directed gun. All this was seen in a moment as the vision of a drowning man or of any human creature at any very great pass could see a world if it were there. They drew back from the window, and the doctor looked for explanation in his friend's ashy face. They are, Mr. Lorry whispered the words, glancing fearfully round at the locked room, murdering the prisoners. If you are sure of what you say, if you really have the power you think you have as I believe you have make yourself known to these devils and get taken to law force. It may be too late, I don't know but let it not be a minute later. Dr. Manette pressed his hand, hastened bareheaded out of the room, and was in the courtyard when Mr. Lorry regained the blind. His streaming white hair, his remarkable face, and the impetuous confidence of his manner as he put the weapons aside like water carried him in an instant to the heart of the concourse at the stone. For a few moments there was a pause and a hurry and a murmur, and the unintelligible sound of his voice, and then Mr. Lorry saw him, surrounded by all, and in the midst of a line of twenty men long, all linked shoulder to shoulder, and hand to shoulder, hurried out with cries of dash live the Bastille prisoner.
help for the Bastille prisoner's kindred in law force. Room for the Bastille prisoner in front there. Save the prisoner Evermond at law force and a thousand answering shouts. He closed the lattice again with a fluttering heart, closed the window and the curtain, hastened to Lucy and told her that her father was assisted by the people and gone in search of her husband. He found her child and Miss Pross with her, but it never occurred to him to be surprised by their appearance until a long time afterwards when he sat watching them in such quiet as the night knew. Lucy had, by that time, fallen into a stupor on the floor at his feet, clinging to his hand. Miss Pross had laid the child down on his own bed and her head had gradually fallen on the pillow beside her pretty charge. All the long, long night with the moans of the poor wife. And all the long, long night with no return of her father and no tidings. Twice more in the darkness the bell at the great gate sounded and the eruption was repeated and the grindstone whirled and spluttered. What is it? cried Lucy, affrighted. Hush! The soldier's swords are sharpened there, said Mr. Lorry. The place is national property now and used as a kind of armory, my love. Twice more in all, but the last spell of work was feeble and fitful. Soon afterwards the day began to dawn and he softly detached himself from the clasping hand and cautiously looked out again. A man, so besmeared that he might have been a sorely wounded soldier creeping back to consciousness on a field of slain, was rising from the pavement by the side of the grindstone and looking about him with a vacant air. Shortly, this worn-out murderer descried in the imperfect light one of the carriages of Monsignor and, staggering to that gorgeous vehicle, climbed in at the door and shut himself up to take his rest on its dainty cushions. The great grindstone, earth, had turned when Mr. Lorry looked out again and the sun was red on the courtyard. But the lesser grindstone stood alone there in the calm morning air with a red upon it that the sun had never given and would never take away. Chapter 3 The Shadow One of the first considerations which arose in the business mind of Mr. Lorry when business hours came round was this, that he had no right to imperil Telson's by sheltering the wife of an emigrant prisoner under the bank roof. His own possessions, safety, life, he would have hazarded for Lucy and her child without a moment's demur, but the great trust he held was not his own, and as to that business charge, he was a strict man of business. At first, his mind reverted to Defarge, and he thought of finding out the wine shop again and taking counsel with its master in reference to the safest dwelling place in the distracted state of the city. But. The same consideration that suggested him, repudiated him, he lived in the most violent quarter and doubtless was influential there and deep in its dangerous workings. Noon coming and the doctor not returning and every minute's delay tending to compromise Telson's, Mr. Lorry advised with Lucy. 
She said that her father had spoken of hiring a lodging for a short term in that quarter near the banking house. As there was no business objection to this, and as he foresaw that even if it were all well with Charles and he were to be released, he could not hope to leave the city, Mr. Lorry went out in quest of such a lodging and found a suitable one high up in a removed by street where the closed blinds and all the other windows of a high melancholy square of buildings marked deserted homes. To this lodging he at once removed Lucy and her child and this pross, giving them what comfort he could and much more than he had himself. He left Jerry with them as a figure to fill a doorway that would bear considerable knocking on the head and returned to his own occupations. A disturbed and doleful mind he brought to bear upon them and slowly and heavily the day lagged on with him. It wore itself out and wore him out with it until the bank closed. He was again alone in his room of the previous night considering what to do next when he heard a foot upon the stair. In a few moments, a man stood in his presence who, with a keenly observant look at him, addressed him by his name. Your servant, said Mr. Lorry. Do you know me? He was a strongly made man with dark curling hair from 45 to 50 years of age. For answer he repeated, without any change of emphasis, the words. Do you know me? I have seen you somewhere. Perhaps at my wine shop? Much interested and agitated, Mr. Lorry said, you come from Dr. Manette? Yes. I come from Dr. Manette. And what says he? What does he send me? Defarge gave into his anxious hand an open scrap of paper. It bore the words in the doctor's writing. Charles is safe, but I cannot safely leave this place yet. I have obtained the favor that the bearer has a short note from Charles to his wife. Let the bearer see his wife. It was dated from La Force within an hour. Will you accompany me? said Mr. Lorry joyfully relieved after reading this note aloud to where his wife resides? Yes, returned Defarge. Scarcely noticing as yet in what a curiously reserved and mechanical way Defarge spoke, Mr. Lorry put on his hat and they went down into the courtyard. There, they found two women, one knitting. Madame Defarge, surely, said Mr. Lorry, who had left her in exactly the same attitude some seventeen years ago. It is she, observed her husband. Does Madame go with us? inquired Mr. Lorry, seeing that she moved as they moved. Yes. That she may be able to recognize the faces and know the persons. It is for their safety. Beginning to be struck by Defarge's manner, Mr. Lorry looked dubiously at him and led the way. Both the women followed, the second woman being the vengeance. They passed through the intervening streets as quickly as they might 
ascended the staircase of the new domicile were admitted by Jerry and found Lucy weeping alone. She was thrown into a transport by the tidings Mr. Lorry gave her of her husband and clasped the hand that delivered his note little thinking what it had been doing near him in the night and might, but for a chance, have done to him. Dearest, take courage. I am well and your father has influence around me. You cannot answer this. Kiss our child for me. That was all the writing. It was so much, however, to her who received it that she turned from Defarge to his wife and kissed one of the hands that knitted. It was a passionate, loving, thankful, womanly action but the hand made no response dropped cold and heavy and took to its knitting again. There was something in its touch that gave Lucy a check. She stopped in the act of putting the note in her bosom and, with her hands yet at her neck, looked terrified at Madame Defarge. Madame Defarge met the lifted eyebrows and forehead with a cold, impassive stare. My dear, said Mr. Lorry, striking in to explain, there are frequent risings in the streets and, although it is not likely they will ever trouble you, Madame Defarge wishes to see those whom she has the power to protect at such times to the end that she may know them that she may identify them. I believe, said Mr. Lorry, rather halting in his reassuring words, as the stony manner of all the three impressed itself upon him more and more, I state the case, Citizen Defarge. Defarge looked gloomily at his wife and gave no other answer than a gruff sound of acquiescence. You had better, Lucy, said Mr. Lorry, doing all he could to propitiate, by tone and manner, have the dear child here and her good pross. Our good pross, Defarge, is an English lady and knows no French. The lady in question, whose rooted conviction that she was more than a match for any foreigner, was not to be shaken by distress and danger, appeared with folded arms and observed in English to the vengeance whom her eyes first encountered, well, I am sure, boldface. I hope you are pretty well. She also bestowed a British cough on Madame Defarge, but neither of the two took much heed of her. Is that his child? said Madame Defarge, stopping in her work for the first time and pointing her knitting needle at little Lucy as if it were the finger of fate. Yes, Madame, answered Mr. Lorry, this is our poor prisoner's darling daughter and only child. The shadow attendant on Madame Defarge and her party seemed to fall so threatening and dark on the child that her mother instinctively kneeled on the ground beside her and held her to her breast. The shadow attendant on Madame Defarge and her party seemed then to fall, threatening and dark, on both the mother and the child. It is enough, my husband, said Madame Defarge. I have seen them. We may go. But. The suppressed manner had enough of menace in it not visible and presented, but indistinct and withheld to alarm Lucy into saying, as she laid her appealing hand on Madame Defarge's dress.
You will be good to my poor husband. You will do him no harm. You will help me to see him if you can? Your husband is not my business here, returned Madame Defarge, looking down at her with perfect composure. It is the daughter of your father who is my business here. For my sake, then, be merciful to my husband. For my child's sake, she will put her hands together and pray you to be merciful. We are more afraid of you than of these others. Madame Defarge received it as a compliment and looked at her husband. Defarge, who had been uneasily biting his thumbnail and looking at her, collected his face into a sterner expression. What is it that your husband says in that little letter? asked Madame Defarge with a lowering smile. Influence, he says something touching influence? That my father, said Lucy, hurriedly taking the paper from her breast, but with her alarmed eyes on her questioner and not on it, has much influence around him. Surely it will release him, said Madame Defarge. Let it do so. As a wife and mother, cried Lucy most earnestly, I implore you to have pity on me and not to exercise any power that you possess against my innocent husband, but to use it in his behalf. Oh, sister woman, think of me. As a wife and mother, Madame Defarge looked coldly as ever at the suppliant and said, turning to her friend the vengeance. The wives and mothers we have been used to see since we were as little as this child and much less have not been greatly considered. We have known their husbands and fathers laid in prison and kept from them often enough. All our lives we have seen our sister women suffer in themselves and in their children, poverty, nakedness, hunger, thirst, sickness, misery, oppression, and neglect of all kinds. We have seen nothing else return the vengeance. We have borne this a long time, said Madame Defarge, turning her eyes again upon Lucy. Judge you. Is it likely that the trouble of one wife and mother would be much to us now? She resumed her knitting and went out. The vengeance followed. Defarge went last and closed the door. Courage, my dear Lucy, said Mr. Lorry as he raised her. Courage, courage. So far all goes well with us much, much better than it has of late gone with many poor souls. Cheer up and have a thankful heart. I am not thankless, I hope. But that dreadful woman seems to throw a shadow on me and on all my hopes. Tat, tat, said Mr. Lorry. What is this despondency in the brave little breast? A shadow indeed. No substance in it, Lucy. But the shadow of the manner of these defarges was dark upon himself for all that, and in his secret mind it troubled him greatly.